This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Josh Higgins talks about how to design software products that become popular with users. The answer is you never know. You really don't know until you do a lot of research and ultimately you go with your gut. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Josh Higgins is the Executive Creative Director for Virtual and Augmented Reality Products and Hardware at Facebook. Before Facebook, he was design director for President Barack Obama's 2012 campaign. If that seems like a major career leap from presidential politics to social media giant, just you wait. Before he got into design, Josh was a musician. For over a decade, he performed and recorded with the band Fluff. In other words, Josh is a renaissance man, and he's also a really interesting guy. Josh Higgins, welcome to Design Matters. 
Hi, Debbie. It's really great to have you here at long last. I can't tell you how excited I am oh, to good, be here. Good, good, yeah. good. Well, let's let's see once I ask you all the questions I got for you. Okay. Um, so, Josh, I understand that Facebook will do laundry for you, but your <laughs> wife won't let you bring yours to the office. She doesn't That's want true. you to be that guy. So who's that guy? That's true. Um, Facebook uh, affords the employees like many um, wonderful perks, that being one of them. So they uh, wash your underwear. <laughs> if you if you need. <laughs> if you let them. <laughs> yeah, if you need, they do. Um, but, yeah, I, I took my laundry in once thinking I was doing um, my wife a favor, and actually I offended her by taking it in. Um, so I don't do that anymore, although they do dry cleaning as well. They help us with that, and so that's okay. That's within the limits. She let you do that? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> you grew up in Southern California. Your whole family surfed, and you, too, started surfing by the time you were seven. And I understand that your first career aspiration was to be a professional surfer. It was. So you're quite good at it? Are you still quite good at I'm it? I'm not quite good at it still. Um, I, I, I would say I was fairly good at it, but not good enough to make it a career. And um, thankfully, I realized that early on. Your parents divorced when you were three. I understand that your dad was one of the first two actors Howard Hughes signed to his production company. Wow, yes. <laughs> yes, he was. So tell us a little bit about him and his career and, mm -hmm. and how that impacted you. Yeah, so um, the story I've been told by my mom is that uh, my mom was a model for Saks Fifth Avenue, and my dad was there, and went on a date. Um, their first date was on John Wayne's plane to a party here in New York. So, yeah, my, uh, most of my, my dad had retired by the time I could really understand what, what it was he did. But he did show me many photos of me um, on Robert Redford's lap as a child. Um, there was one picture I remember in particular where Robert Redford was in the bushes, uh, a little bit inebriated, and I was sitting on him. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I read that he that your dad used to bring you to fancy dinners in a little tux, and that's where you got your impeccable manners that you're known for, which are perhaps a bit of an anomaly in the world of punk rock. I learned early on how important they were. He was very, very adamant about about being a gentleman. I think early on I saw what sort of reaction people had when you were a gentleman, and it was like great positive feedback. And Are so, you sure it wasn't because they were enamored by a little boy wearing a tuxedo? <laughs> maybe, maybe. And, and the picture of you and Robert Redford where you're sitting on him, is, is that in a tuxedo? Are you, are you both in tuxedos? No, I think it was in some bad 70s gear that my mom put me in. But <laughs> <laughs> Now, your mom got remarried when mm -hmm. you were four or five, and you didn't get along with your stepdad. Mm -hmm. uh, you were very angry growing up, and following years of therapy, you've said, and I didn't speak to your therapist, so I, I don't want you to think there's any violation <laughs> of any HIPAA laws here. Um, but following years of therapy, you said it was because you were sad that your parents weren't together anymore. Did that anger play out as you were growing up? Yeah, um, it was funny. I, I never realized until I hit started going to therapy why I was so angry. When uh, I was introduced to punk rock, the energy and angst and anger that you could sort of release was what drew it to me. And I, um, I never thought of myself as an angry sort of person before that. And then it all sort of came out. And uh, when I got into therapy, 
I remember being told that, oh, he's just like a, he's a bad boy. Or I used to, when I was three, my parents first divorced, um, I used to like bite people and I was just acting out. Um, my therapist reminded me, no, you were probably upset. And so people thought you were just a bad boy, but you're actually just in a reaction. So I started, when I got older, I started putting it all together that, that the punk rock was like another outlet for that. So and it helped you heal in yeah, a lot of ways. Yeah, it really did help me heal. And I found this community of people that had that were either from a similar background or some something else really made them angry in their lives as well. One of the first albums you ever purchased was a minor threat record. So can you talk a little bit about that? You're smiling, so there's a story there. I just, I love these questions. These are amazing. Um, yeah, I went, my uh, friend of mine, Jim Brown, um, came back from England. I guess it was a very early 80s. And when he left, he was this sort of normal surfer um, like myself. And he came back and he had spiked hair. He had these shoes called Creepers on. Um, he had safety pin in his ear. And I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> and he was the one that turned me on to punk rock originally. And um, he said, we need to take you record store shopping because the only record I had had at that time was, I think, Van Halen, Boston. Those are all good They're albums. all good albums. Would but, you remember um, what your first album purchase ever was? Yeah, it was Boston. It was. It was Boston. The More Than a Feeling yeah, Boston, the one that it. Paula Cher did. That was it. Yeah, she hates that album cover, oh, and I gosh. don't understand why. It is just great album cover. I think that's why I bought it, actually. I didn't know the band. Yeah, so um, he said, we need, we need to take you record store shopping. And I went into this record store, um, a very small store, and they carried, like, all punk rock stuff in San Diego. And I saw the minor threat. Records, a very simple black and white record, and it has a the picture of it has a bunch of sheep on the front, and one of the sheep is black, and it's walking away from the flock, and it says out of step, and I was like, wow, I, I just related to it, and he told me that that was a great record, so I, I bought it for the cover, I remember, and then ended up they're still one of my favorite bands to this day. <laughs> one of the punk bands that I first bought an album of or by because of the cover was Flipper. Remember Flipper? Yeah, Generic Flipper with the greatest logo yes. of all time. The fish with the cross Absolutely. eye is just, I think, one of the greatest albums of all time. That's amazing. Yeah. I had no so idea. good. Yeah. Oh, I got some range, Josh. You're looking at me like I thought you would be into Olivia Newton John. No, I didn't which think I am that, actually. But, I just didn't but think you know. <laughs> <laughs> so is at this point in your life, after after going record store shopping and, and and discovering Minor Threat, did you start to think at that point of shifting your career goals from surfer to musician? Yeah, um, I'd always played music. Um, my parents were very encouraging of that, and I always had guitars. I remember my parents bought me this really small practice amp for electric guitar, and, and I said, well, I want something bigger than that. This is not loud enough. Um, and my mom said, there's no way. And so um, I went out to a pawn shop, and I bought one and snuck it in while she was at work and put it in my bedroom. Awesome. <laughs> um, and I don't know how I thought I was going to get away with that. But, um, but yeah, I'd always played music and surfed. And then when I realized that surfing wasn't going to be my career, I, I, I started really heavily focusing on music. And in middle school, you began playing in bands. Did you start straight away with punk music or did you yeah. start with something else? Yeah, I started straight away with punk music. It was probably the easiest thing to get into. 
And I read that you could often be found at Kinko's, chopping up type and enlarging photos for your band's flyers. How did you get the job of band designer as well as musician? It's really funny in in bands. um, Everyone sort of takes on a role, and it's like unspoken, really. Um, It just sort of happens. And I took on the role early days of like manager. And so I would try and set up the gigs. I would try and set up tours if we were going to play out of town. Um, And that also meant promoting and helping promote. And so um, I I would just emulate the flyers that I had seen from my punk rock days that I had in my bedroom. And looking back at some of those flyers, they're just like horrendous. I was just like mixing type like crazy. And But that was the visual language of the yeah. time. I mean, that was the Southern California punk scene explosion. It was. It was. I just, <laughs> now it hurts. But um, it was a lot of fun at the time. And I remember just thinking, oh, these, these two look good together. Um, and, you know, I often used um, uh, rub down type and so it looked like ransom letters? Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> looked like ransom letters. Do you still have any of them? I do. I have a few of them left. We should do um, a little slideshow of those. Yeah, that would be fun. I'd love to share them with you. You went to community college for a year but dropped out. Instead, in the early 90s, you formed your band, Fluff. Why the name Fluff? Lowercase. So all lowercase letters, F-L-U-F. So the band had been going um, a couple years prior to me joining um, but the story of the name is that, you know, there was a, um, a lot of bands out at the time that had these very, like, one-word names that were very heady. Nirvana. So, yeah, just, like, crazy mud honey, and I guess that's two words, but they spelled as one. Um, but he, So they wanted a name that was just, that was the opposite of what the band was, and so they picked oh. Fluff. Okay. But over the years, you recorded several albums. You played an insane amount of shows. You played with all the gods of punk at the time, Rancid, mm-hmm. Bad Religion, Jawbreaker. You had Gwen Stefani and No Doubt <laughs> open one of your shows. They opened one yeah. of your shows. Yeah. Uh, and then in 94, you signed with a major label. You signed with MCA Universal. Tell us the story about getting signed. Wow. What an amazing time it was for um, just music in general, especially for alternative rock or punk rock bands. Nirvana had just broke. Every record company was looking for the next Nirvana for their record label. And Fluff had always had a lot of major label interest um, through its career. And then uh, the drummer, uh, Miles, and myself were very excited to sign with a major label and just see where that would take the band. Oh, is he's our singer, short for Otis. He, um, he, I, and Miles decided that we were going to entertain, um, and so we started talking with different record labels, and ultimately ended up signing with MCA. Um, we also signed the same day we signed, we, uh, Sublime signed with MCA as well, um, and then shortly after that, Blink One Eighty Two signed with MCA. So they they had grabbed some some bands uh, pretty quickly. But yeah, I, I remember it was, you know, when I started playing music, it was like the ultimate goal was to sign with a major label and have a career in music. And it afforded us to be able to have money to live. You know, it was a lot of money at the time. And I remember it was the first time that um, that my parents actually thought that it was like a real career because I was actually making more money than my dad for once. Uh, all at once, you know, yeah. just like switched. And um, yeah, it was just really interesting. Um, even with the, as much money as it was, it really just brought me up to like 
uh, a normal standard because before that I was living with no car insurance, no health insurance, uh, a bed, a mattress that was on the floor, you know, it was bare bones and all of a sudden I was able to get these like just normal things. (laughs) So, um, but it was really, really great to be able to finally um, um, do something that you really loved and be able to earn a living doing it. You also got endorsed by Fender, which meant that all of your gear was suddenly free and you no longer had to drive it around in a van that you were piloting uh, to a bus with a driver. What was That must have been so heady. Did you feel like a rock star? Yeah. I, I mean, literally and figuratively? I, I, um, I was just, uh, I kept just being so thankful for everything that was happening at the time um, and just going, wow, I can't, I can't believe this happened. And then... Um, it was actually like during our first, I think it was our first or second warp tour, I actually had my first panic attack. I think just the the enormity of everything just hit me all at once. Um, and I remember it being about uh, 5 a.m. and we were going through Wyoming and no one was up. And so um, there's this little seat right next to the bus driver that you could just sit and watch and just, you know, sort of meditate. And I went up there. And I sat with them, and we didn't talk. We just kind of looked. It was just beautiful, beautiful mountains. It was a little bit of snow on them. All of a sudden, I felt my throat start closing up, and I was like, "What? I'm going to die. What is going on with me? Um, And it wasn't until, you know, probably a year later um, that I realized it was all because of everything that had happened so fast. It was all just sort of hitting me at once. But So it was like I always think back of it as like the best and worst times. Um, Because it was like a dream coming true, but also like I think the pressure of now having to sell our music to um, make a record company happy and – I mean, they're really betting. They're paying you all that money because they're betting on your success. But they want that money back. They want that money back. Yeah, it's not free. You said that the all-time favorite tour you did was with the legendary Fugazi. Oh, yeah. What was it like to play with them on that tour? I'd always heard these sort of legendary stories about how just sweet they were and what nice people they were. And that was, like, true from the very first night. So the first night, I remember we played at this venue, and uh, some people had broke the sink off (laughs) in the bathroom. And the club owner came and was going to take it out of, you know, the show's pay. And Fugazi ended up paying for it themselves because they knew we were obviously not making as much as they were. So the tour sort of went from there. There's so many stories from that tour. You know, one of them, um, I remember uh, being backstage at, uh, I believe it was the Hunt Ridge Theater in Las Vegas, and everybody had gone out to do something, lunch or something like that, and this guy comes back, and he was he almost looked homeless. Um, and I was like, wow, how did he get back here? And he said, hey, have you seen Ian? And I go, no, they went to lunch, man, but you're welcome to sit here and wait for them. They should be back very soon. And so he sat he sat down for a while. And it turns out that was John Fashanti of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wow. During, during his heroin phase. Oh, okay. So I just didn't recognize him at all. Yeah. But um, I was like, wow, I wish I would have known that was him. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if you can tell us about an infamous incident involving the Deftones and bologna sandwiches? <laughs> yes. Um, 
So the the warp tour the way the warp tour worked is um, you know the buses would all leave at the same time approximately about an hour to two hours after the last band played, and the catering would bring you snacks for the for the drive, um, and then you would get your itinerary for the next day. And I remember they brought us uh, some bologna sandwiches among other things. And another thing that would happen is you get bored just being on your own bus all the time. So often when you had friends with that were in other bands, you would switch and they would come on your bus for a while or you would go on their bus for a night and just watch movies or, or whatever. Well, this night um, we all got a little high and um, we started getting into the bologna sandwiches and instead of eating them, we started throwing them at the window um, <laughs> and the bologna would stick and then just slowly <laughs> go down the window and we just thought it was hilarious. Um, and, that you know, the bus is not yours. It's actually the bus driver's. Um, and he pulled over the bus and was so angry at us. I mean, he literally made us clean the whole bus before he would drive any longer. So despite all the success <laughs> and all the bologna sandwiches, you decided you didn't want to live the life of a full-time musician. What made you decide to say, no, I don't want this life? We um, were playing a show. uh they call them radio shows, and um, Clear Channel owns like hundreds of stations across the U.S., and they have bands um, fly into those cities and will play like a festival show. And so we were literally flying from from state to state playing these shows for Clear Channel. And it was a time where the uh, president of MCA showed up to see us. And um, we got in a little bit of an argument with our A&R rep, our artist relations rep, and um, she was really upset with us, and she told the president of MCA that we had got in this argument. Why was she upset with you? So when we would show up to these shows, um, they would rent the equipment for us because all we were traveling with was our guitars. And we showed up to this show, and I didn't have the normal amplifier that I usually have. And I asked, why didn't I have, I don't have the usual one. And she said, well, the uh, rental place didn't have them. And so then our singer chim chimed in, uh, oh, and he said, why didn't they have it? And then the rental guy overheard, and he said, well, that's because your label was the very last people to rent the equipment. It was a really weird argument. Uh, ended up with her saying, oh, is that, is that going to be your excuse for not sounding good today? And I was like, oh, shit, you don't say that to O. Um, and, and he said, some choice words that I won't repeat. Uh, she started to um, cry and then took that to the president of MCA and that escalated into another argument with the president of MCA. And it was at that moment where I said, wow, this could all end today over this really kind of ridiculous like argument. Um, and I just, I just figured, I, I knew I was getting older. It was a bunch of a combination of things. I was getting older. I was sort of getting tired of, of traveling. Uh, I still, like, love music to this day, but I just knew that um, it was going to be a really hard career if I was to continue for the foreseeable future. So that was sort of the defining moment. That There was others, but I think that was like the... Because um, we actually ended up putting out another record after that. Um, but I remember that being the one where I was like, wow, this is, um, this is all so fragile. Yeah. Um, you're, you're basically in a small business 
with two other guys whom I love to death. O is still one of my best friends to this day. But at any moment, you know, it's like any relationship. It could just end. And then your career is done. Uh, that was like very sort of the, the thing that I kept thinking about. You decided at that point to go back to school. Yeah. And you enrolled at San Diego City College to study graphic design. Yes. Why on earth did you pick graphic design? <laughs> so, um, so O, Otis, uh, in the band, he designed all our first records. And I was always just like really enamored with him and, and his skills. He was such a great um, designer. He's a photographer. He's, he's, he's really a Renaissance man as well. And that piqued my interest. And then a friend of mine, um, Jill, had just graduated from City College. And she's the one that said, hey, I think you would, be, you would like graphic design. And I, and I literally said to her, what is that? <laughs> and, and she mentioned, well, remember the flyers? And I'm, wow, you can make a living at that? <laughs> she goes, not exactly. About as good as an unknown band. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly. Uh, but she, she told me I had to meet um, this woman, Candace Lopez, who ran the department there. Um, and I did. And Candace completely changed my life. And she recalls you being really, really talented right from the start. But you've said that you didn't have the same confidence that she did in you. What were you envisioning at that time? What did you think your possibilities were? Um, I was so unsure with w what the industry even was. It was so new. Like, um, I wasn't sure where it would go. I thought it was going to be this very sort of service-oriented, um, someone gives you a task and you do that task. And she was the one that really taught me that um, before you put anything on down on paper, it has to have a good idea, it has to have substance to it and, and that really sort of broadened what I how, what I thought about design and then from there it just grew and grew um, but I, I wasn't sure that that was the type of thinker I was um, I had never explored that part of my brain so I wasn't sure if I was going to be good at it or not I was a little nervous and Candace really was so encouraging all the time the following framed note has sat on your desk ever since you first received it in the late 1990s. Dear Josh, I truly enjoyed meeting you. Your interest in typography, logo design, and beautiful manners impressed me. You were particularly thoughtful. Candace is an inspired teacher, lucky for you. If you want additional comments on your work, I'd be happy to look at your efforts. Meanwhile, keep up your excellent work and, of course, the best of luck. Kindest regards, Doyled. That note was from Doyled Young, the late, great master typographer. Yeah. And I understand he went on to become a mentor to you. Yeah. He was... Um, An extraordinary... No, it's okay. I feel the same way. He was... And, and for any, any of our listeners that might be interested, many, many years ago I did do a Design Matters interview with him, which is one of the highlights of my interviewing career. But he was really one of the greatest typographers to have lived in the 20th century. And I, I have to add humans. Yes. I mean, he's just like the um, – you know, it really wasn't until later in my career that I realized just how amazing Doyle was a, as a typographer. I always thought he was just an amazing human. Mm -hmm. um, I obviously knew his skills. Um, the way I met Doyle is Candace invited him down to City College 
um, to critique. She had been friends with Doyle for a long time. He came to our logo class, and you know, it was a class of 30, pe- 30 students, and so uh, you had to put your name in a hat. He was going to choose three people, and then you would get one-on-one time with Doyle. <laughs> it's like winning the lotto. Oh, my God. <laughs> my name got pulled, and I was like, holy shit. And that's um, – I received that note after that meeting, my first meeting with Doyle. And I remember I spent I spent a whole weekend, I mean, probably at least 20 hours on this logo. What was the logo for? It was a, a fake hotel called King Plaza. Right. <laughs> I knew I knew that Doyle had done a lot of work for hotels, and so that's why I chose that one. And I spent 20 hours lettering this thing, and I had just piles and piles of tissue paper. And I brought it in, and he sat down with me, and then like the first like four minutes, he goes, this is very good, Josh, but had you maybe have thought about this? And just like within 30 seconds, drew like something more beautiful than I— Freehand, right? Freehand. God, he could do that well. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I was just, like, shocked. And that's sort of where our relationship started. Um, And then he was just always open for any feedback. But I've often said that the thing that I learned most from him was about manners. Mm. Just more— He was um, such a gentleman. Such a gentleman and and, um, human. And he was just so, so giving— um, it was just really amazing. After you graduated, you didn't have an easy time finding work. Why? I, I remember Candace saying um, this is the worst time she'd seen in at least her time teaching at City College. Um, there wasn't a lot of jobs. And I was sending my resume out um, along with them. Um, I don't know if people do this anymore, but those little silly gifts. Yes. Candace told me about the time that she sent to BBH. She sent one shoe with a note and then followed up a week later with another shoe. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what I, was the point of this? <laughs> it was just to get their attention. Okay. You know? um, so, so you'd be able to sort of rise to the top and go, oh, maybe I should look at that portfolio. That's really clever. And so I was always trying to think of clever things to do. Um, and so I was silk screening shop rags with my information on them and sending those and I remember uh, sending spark plugs. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Very uh, literal. <laughs> yeah. Nothing was really working um, right away. Well, over the years, you you ended up getting some work and working for Conover, mm-hmm. Audio Footwear, Muriello, Grafico, Vitra, and Departure, the magazine. Is it Departure Magazine? No, it's a, um, it was a JWT company. Um, Departure was a... Um, Digital agency was one of the first digital agencies in in San Diego. Well, not the first, but one of the bigger ones in San Diego that were doing that more national work. You've said that you used to call bullshit in your mind when your professors said design could change lives. And then you designed a poster for the Hurricane Poster Project following Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And your poster ended up bringing in more money than you could have donated on your own. And I understand that's when you realized that design could indeed help change the world. And you decided at that point you would always allocate a percentage of your time to designing for causes that you care about. And I believe you still do this today. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And you then worked on a project to benefit Haiti following the 2010 earthquake, and you daydreamed about working for a cause you believed in full-time. And I understand a poster of yours went viral, and shortly thereafter, you got an email that changed the trajectory of your life. As you told the crowd at Typo in San Francisco, treasure the moments. You never know when a life-changing one will come along. Don't let them slip by. So what happened to you? Um, I received an email that said, come work for the president. And <laughs> You thought it was a spam email, I, right? I thought this was such bullshit. Um, and I had a friend of mine trace it back to, I want to see what server it was coming from. Right. Because I was like, this is a great punk. Uh, he said, no, that's coming from the Obama servers. And I said, hmm, I'm still suspect. So I just replied, sounds interesting. <laughs> Uh, and a couple hours later, I got another email for a conference call. And so after an intense round of interviews and background checks that I think you thought you weren't going to pass. I thought that's where I was going to get. The bologna like, sandwiches were going to come back and haunt you, right? I thought that's what it was going to be. <laughs> you got the call offering you the gig while you were napping on a beach. And you answered half asleep. They offered you the job. And you asked if you could call them back, playing <laughs> yes. hard to get Mr. Higgins. Uh, um, now, you didn't want to, you weren't entirely sure you were all the way awake. So you didn't want to respond like half asleep. Um, So were you an Obama fan at the time? I was. I was a um, very big Obama fan at the time. Shepard Ferry got me really interested in Obama in uh, in 2007. Because of his poster or because of conversations you had with Shep? Both. Okay. Both. His enthusiasm got me to really, like, check out what was going on with Obama. And so, um, you know, I, I was swept up with the the whole wave and um, did a poster for his campaign in 2007. Now, I understand after you accepted the job, you spent four days driving to Chicago, which you said was the worst thing you could have done. You suddenly had a lot of misgivings. How come? You have a lot of time to think during those four days. But what could have gone wrong? I mean, you're going to work for the president. Why? How could that possibly be bad? Oh, I just started thinking of all these things, uh, all these questions I should have asked before I accepted the job. Like what? Give us one. Um, what does the team look like? Oh, what, like okay, I, so I, really important questions. I didn't get yeah. into, like, I was just so blown away that I was going to work for the president that I just, I kind of said, fuck it, I'm just going to do this. Um, and then when you have time to really think about it, that's when I started thinking, wow, you know, did I just do something really stupid? Um, and what, one of the things I thought about was like, what if I meet the president and he's not who I think he is? Mm. That was one of the biggest things. It's going to be really hard to get through this if he's not the human that I think he is. Did um, that ever happen? Yeah. Um, he's definitely the human you think he is. He's just a wonderful man. Um, and, and, yeah, just amazing. What was it like to be taking design direction from the president? <laughs> uh, well, luckily, he wasn't – I didn't have to, like, talk – I didn't talk to him directly about design direction, although he he would send emails when, like, when his site went up. He was very excited um, on, on how that looked, and he sent us an email saying, congratulations, and this is great. Um, but most of the time, I was working with uh, Jim Messina and David Axelrod in, in the White House. They were and Teddy Goff, my director. They were they were the ones giving most of the creative feedback. 
You updated the Obama logo. You designed yeah. a slew of websites. You redesigned virtually everything under the sun to represent the campaign. And your time there was really intense. You worked seven days a week, 16-hour sprints every day. And when asked about the secret to success, you've said it's super simple. There is no certain path you can take to be successful. Whatever the path is, you just have to work your ass off. And I I kind of love that because I think everybody really wants things to happen really fast now and just by the sheer virtue of wanting, of wanting it. Can you talk about one or two sort of peak moments for you during that time? Mm-hmm. A couple of them were things that I didn't really have anything, didn't have anything to do with me really, but they were just things that were just like, I can't believe I'm here that when this is happening. Um, it was more around when um, the president came out or about, gay marriage and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That was just like a um, the energy when that went down was just amazing. Another one was uh, ending the war in Iraq. We spoke with the White House every morning at 10 a.m. Uh, on a call. And um, it was just to sort of align messaging and different things like that. And I remember um, hearing that the war in Iraq was going to be wound down. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe this is going to happen finally, you know. I think a, a third a third was um, Candace Lopez, my professor from City College, came and visited me, and I was able to, like, show her the campaign. Um, I think that was really special for me because she is someone who completely changed my life. And to be able to sort of show her a little bit about how that has developed was really special. After... President Obama's victory, you went home from Chicago, and you got a call from Facebook, another phone call that changed your life. <laughs> yeah. uh, they were interested in your joining the company. Uh, everyone seems to have an opinion now about Facebook, uh, informed or not. What did you think of Facebook at the time? Did you even have a Facebook account? I did have a Facebook account, but I was not active, very active on it. Um, I really had no idea what I would do at Facebook when they first called. You joined and led a team responsible for Facebook's identity design, marketing pages, environmental design, films, company culture. So I guess I'll ask you the same question I asked about President Obama. What was it like taking design direction from Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> it's actually awesome. In what uh, way? Talk uh, about it. He He's so curious. Um, I think that's the right word, curious. When we, I remember when we were re- redesigning the Facebook logo, he took a lot of interest in it, which I was really, really excited that he did, and asked some really great questions and gave some really great feedback. And some of the questions were really, really pretty intricate questions on, you know, why, why did the um, C and the E interact in the way that they, that they were? And I was like, wow, he's really like noticing some things that um, most people probably just take for granted. So that was really, it was a really awesome experience. You then went on to help build the factory at Facebook, which was dubbed a group of artists, engineers, designers, misfits, writers, filmmakers, producers, strategists, and people you'd want in your lifeboat. <laughs> so so can you? I know that there's a lot you can't talk about, but what can you share about the kind of work you were doing on that team? Yeah, the um, uh, the factory, one of the first things that we worked on was the um, personalized video program 
was one. So, um, and you had something to do with birthday videos too, yeah, right? We yeah. owe that one to you. Yeah. <laughs> I just had yeah. a birthday, so thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I felt very loved. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, myself and um, two uh, two other creatives were the first that worked on that. Um, redesigned the Facebook logo. Um, just the small stuff. Yeah, identities for other teams, um, Facebook uh, campaigns, so both out-of-home campaigns as well as TV. Yeah, it was a very wide range of um, brand and marketing for Facebook Incorporated, so the, at an ink level. Um, and then we did a lot of work for the products as well, so groups and events and things like that. They all are separate products within Facebook. Today, you're the executive creative director for VR and AR, virtual reality and augmented reality at Facebook. Why the move to AR and VR, and what kind of future do you see us humans having with these different kinds of realities? Yeah, so what one thing I realized about myself is that I love challenges and I love being in uncomfortable places. Really? Yeah. You'll have to teach me that. <laughs> you have to teach me that talent. <laughs> I, I like being put into two things that um, I have to sort of figure out. And that seemed like one I didn't know much about. Building 8 was a new venture for Facebook. And why is it called Building 8? Because there is no Building 8. <laughs> it's a secretive group within Facebook. Very Twilight Zone. I like it. And so it was started by this woman, Regina Dugan, and she was very interested in um, and how Building 8 would be sort of represented both graphically and sort of the vibe of Building 8. She felt that that was really important. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, this brilliant woman, she ran DARPA before coming to Facebook. And I was like, this brilliant woman is so interested in like the branding of this group. This is amazing. It's a good sign. Great sign. And um, I um, started working with her on the identity of Building 8. And uh, that turned into just a really great, friendship. And so, yeah, so I went over and um, started helping her build the creative team there for um, for Facebook. So let's talk about Portal. Yeah. Portal allows Facebook users to communicate face-to-face -face on a standalone video platform, but it's kind of in an innovative manner that goes beyond simple FaceTiming. The yeah. Portal device has a smart wide-angle camera. So as the user moves, it zooms and pans and tracks them automatically, mm -hmm. which feels like magic. But it can also play music through connected apps or stream video. And Facebook has said that the device makes for a more natural video chat environment since the smart camera does all the work. How did you know that there was a gap in the market for this? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think people smarter than me knew that they saw that there was a gap in the market. Oh come on! Um, you, you know you're 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 masterminding this, so I don't I don't uh, fully buy that. Um, I think I think um, if you've ever done video chat, it's like very difficult. Um, because Especially you if you're doing it with lots of kids, totally. like I do it with my niece and nephew, yeah. and like I'm ending up talking to them, but don't even see their faces. Yeah, because they're off. They're off <laughs> exactly, camera. Yeah. The, the other day, I was uh, I was video chatting uh, my sister-in-law. And she said, is there anyone in the room? I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm over here. Uh, so, yeah, so Portal Portal helps um, to make it feel like you're in the same room. And it's really um, – I think it's an amazing product myself. Um, I really – I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of the team. 
How do you decide at which pace you introduce more and more innovative technology? It feels like it's sort of like playing a bit of psychology for what consumers are ready for, what they're not ready for. I mean, I'm thinking back to things like, what was that called? That that device before the Newton, the Newton, (laughs) (laughs) one of one of Apple's few failures. How do you know when the culture is ready for something like this? I think the answer is you never know. You really don't know until um, you you do a lot of research, you do a lot of talking with folks, and ultimately you go with your gut. Really? A lot of times on it. You know, it's informed by a lot, but um, I've ha- had someone who's a veteran of shipping hardware on the team tell me that, you know, some of the some of the best things that he's worked on didn't do well. And mm-hmm. then other ones that he thought were just so-so did really great. So, so it's um, like timing and, yeah, and Russian roulette. It's same with software too. Is you know you think about all the apps that go out in the world uh, every day, and it's random which ones hit. You know, I think there's a, it's a combination of what's happening in society. For instance, you know the all the ephemeral sharing that happens of pictures and and things like that. You know, I think years ago that might not have been something that people did. Now it's huge. Yeah. So if it, somebody had come to me with the idea of Instagram and wanted to know what I would have thought about it, I would have been like, what, what? Just yeah. post a picture? Yeah. I, I don't think so. Well, I remember some first time someone told me about Twitter. They were like, oh, yeah, you just you just put out your thoughts. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Has any part of you been tempted to return to political design given the era in which we now find ourselves? Yes. Yes, if our friend Beto runs. He'll be hearing from me. Let's hope he's listening. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering what you'd do or how you'd feel if Donald Trump was as big a Facebook power user as he is with Twitter. Yeah, um, I'd be disappointed. I'd be disappointed, but the platform is for all voices. It was made for that. So um, I think think that's sort of the, the beauty of Facebook is that it is there for everyone. Well, speaking of social media, in 2012, you mused on Twitter that even though you hadn't been on a skateboard in 15 years, you still see a good spot and ponder how you'd skate it. Still the case? Six (laughs) years later? Yeah, I was walking around New York just going, that looks really skatable. (laughs) (laughs) Where's your your board? (laughs) Oh, my God, I'd kill myself now. But, um, uh, yeah, I just, I always, I always think in terms of how skatable it is. It's really bizarre. Uh, And I have sort of daydreams in my head of what it would be like and the feeling of it under my feet if I were to do it. Um, yeah, it's something I always, I, I think about that with waves as well. When I see a good wave, I think the same thing. Josh, my last question is this. Uh, you've written that you've realized you have to play music or life is just off. So how are you managing that these days? What kind of music are you still playing? Any place we might be able to see you? <laughs> uh, only if you come into my living room about 5.30 when I come home from work and my son grabs my arm and pulls me to the guitar and says, guitar, guitar. Uh, I play for him. How old uh, is he? He's two, two and a half. Um, so I play for him. Punk uh, music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we play we play punk music. And 
have some videos of him um, dancing to Jawbreaker when I play that, which is just like one of my favorite things ever. But he is uh, he's really moved by music, which is um, I don't know if that's true of all kids. I only have one, so. But anytime I put on music, he's really moved by it, and it's like one of the greatest things uh, I've ever seen. Josh, thank you so much for making the world so much more interesting. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I really appreciate it. You can find out more about Josh Higgins on joshhiggins.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie dash millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. 